welcome to Food Love, the space between terroir and the Tao of food. I'm super excited today. I have the pleasure and honor of speaking to Darshan Elena Campos. She is a remarkably accomplished and wonderful spirit who is doing amazing things in the world, working to reclaim spaces in which Indigenous peoples are reconnecting both with the land and seeds and culture in a way that I haven't really seen yet in the places where I travel. And I'm going to ask Darshan to tell us just her story, her lineage, um, the happenings, and, and maybe just to tell us where you are right now so that people can get grounded in place first um, and grounded with you. Darshan? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. From the beautiful island of Boricang, the big island of the old colony known as Puerto Rico, I greet you and I say thank you and I send blessings to you, everyone around you. It is such really a delight to have to, to, to be here talking with you, but also to have come to know you and the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. So right now, as I mentioned, I'm coming to you from Boricen. So it's a small island in the Caribbean Sea. And we are the big island of Puerto Rico. Um, most people know us by that name. Some of our sister islands are Amona, Vieques, Culebra, um, the Dominican Republic and Haiti is next door. That island, um, from an indigenous perspective, is known as Haiti, Quisque and Boio. And right now I'm sitting in my kitchen chatting, chatting with you. It's a beautiful day. It's about 85 degrees. I'm in a tank top. I've already been out sweating in the garden and I'll be returning there shortly. Yeah. So, Darshan, that you find yourself there is interesting to me, like how you got there. Uh, do you want to talk about that a little bit in your, your family's history and relationship to that place? Yes, thank you. Um, so I am um, Boricua by my um, father's lineage and Ashkenazi um, via my mother. So um, Ashkenazi is um, a Jew from Eastern Europe. And then my father being Boricua, his family is from Guayama, which is on the Caribbean side. Um, of the island of Boricen. And how I came to live here is actually a very um, amazing, sometimes tragic story. I think that's how the lives are of many people. But I was born and raised on ancestral Wesbos territory in what's now known as Santa Cruz, California. My parents were um, born and raised in New York. But for all the reasons that so many of us do, they, they left their families and they came to California to, to raise me and give me an experience that was different than the one that they had had. Both my parents grew up in really violent homes. And so I spent most of my life living in what's now known as California um, in a beautiful area, coastal towns. I spent a lot of time also on ancestral was, was um, sorry, ancestral Ohlone territory, which is, you know, um, what's now known as Oakland, um, San Francisco, Berkeley. And I lived there for, for most of my life, pretty much, um, you know, four decades of my life, except for four, four years when I was in college on the East Coast at Wellesley. But you know, just life being the way it is, I I I had to I had to leave my home. You know, my partner wasn't the kind of person that I needed at that time, and I ended up leaving him. And um, after I left, I um, experienced some really extreme hacking, and I wasn't able to get the support that I needed as a survivor of domestic violence. And mm -hmm. so after a while, I. I decided that I was going to listen to the voice of my ancestors and the voice of creator, which said, go towards freedom, 
and freedom was to travel to other people and other places that were doing the work of decolonization. So creating a world without prisons, without borders, where not only is food available, but food is healthy and beautiful and it grows, um, you know, where land is something that we nurture and share. And so I spent a lot of time about four years, you know, kind of like traveling in different ways, um, living sometimes underground, sometimes in activist communities, sometimes um, in, in communes, learning about the ways that people are um, creating freedom in the moment through, through collectivity and through earth-based healing. And during that time, I remained a target of hackers. Um, and so I did spend two stints in safe houses for women who, who have been abused. And I didn't want to do that, but it was what was available to me after hacking that became so severe. I, I lost access to my bank account, my social media accounts, my um, academic and personal archive. And so it was after spending some time in a safe house that I actually um, came to live here, came to live on the island of Borican, which I knew I always wanted to come to for the work that I do. But it was a surprising return to the ancestral island of my father's people and really a, both a horror and a dream. Like this island has welcomed me back with such love and generosity, especially by people on this island in the movement for for the rights, for human rights, for the rights of trans people, for the rights of queer people, for the rights of girls and women. And which is an amazing thing to say since Borican, as part of Puerto Rico, is a colony of the United States. It was here actually that I found the safety that I could not find in the San Francisco Bay Area or any of the other places where I traveled to. It was here. And I am forever grateful to this island for, for taking me in and the people on, in, in the feminist movement for saying, Yes, please. We'll help you. Wow. Wow. That's a powerful journey that you've been on. And and I think just for our listeners' sake to understand that you came from, you know, this most, most recently prior to your move, you were coming from academia mm-hmm. on, on a very high level. Um, you're a Fulbright scholar and you have taught at multiple universities, including Stanford, um, and you've been talking about decolonization for a long time. And so then to sort of make this transformative journey for yourself on a personal level and to begin to put into physical practice and spiritual practice in some ways, all that you're doing that was part of what you were teaching. I'm just wondering if you find yourself in all of yourself, in how you've changed how you're teaching, really, because right? I I am in awe of you. Oh, you're so generous. It's it's on my best days. What I see in me is what I see in you, a fertility goddess, like somebody who is doing the most beautiful stuff in the world to to transform the violence that we experience every day and that we see everywhere. On other days, I'm you know scared and isolated, like so many of us, especially in the context of the coronavirus public health crisis. I lost my auntie, my auntie Julia, who I last saw before I left, you know, Lenape territory, New York City to come to this island. You know, like it's a grave, grave time for so many of us. And, you know, so I have those fears and I have those doubts that so many of us have. But I think like one thing I learned through my life as a survivor and and my time in academia, um, I do have a PhD. I 
I'm very, very lucky for the experiences that I have. And I also know they're very unique. Like none of my other cousins who are Boricua have any education close to what I have. You know, my cousins who are who are Jewish don't have the same sort of critique and experience of white supremacy that I have. So I know that, you know, the gift that I've been given as, you know, a person, as a human, um, and as a scholar, it, it it's what carried me here. But it also, it wasn't enough to protect me from some of the violence that exists in the world. And so that's where I've really found a home in, in seeds and the stories of my ancestors and people who are doing beautiful work for, for social transformation on world scale. So... That's a little bit of, you know, kind of how I see on the good days, you know, yeah. we're, we're fertility goddesses on bad days. Well, we're just going to have to be the warriors the way that we are raised to be woman yeah. warriors, <laughs> stepping up in the way that we can to protect all people. Right. And when, when I think about woman warriors, you, you share with me a story of how your, your mother kind of modeled that for you um, in really powerful ways as an activist in her own right. And so I just wondered if you wanted to speak to that a little bit. Yes. So I am um, my mother, Sandra Joan Sucher Campos. Um, she was an amazing, um, surprising creature. You know, she was, um, you know, like me and so many of us, she was the daughter of genocide. She was born in the midst of World War II and born into a family where there was a lot of um, violence, incest, which my mother survived. And because she didn't get the support that she needed from her family, she became a political organizer. She started working in New York City. She was with the ACLU in the 60s. She was one of the founding members of the Yippies, the Youth International Party. And then she was part of a splinter group that became the Crazies. Um, so the Crazies were like, well, we're not going to win, you know, win the future through um, political organizing the way it's been done. We're not going to win it through surrealism. That's artistic and lovely. So why don't we try being crazy for a while? Because the situation we've encountered is bonkers. And so um, part of how my mother worked with that was by doing a lot of on the ground grassroots organizing in New York, but also like, you know, the, the, the loving work of connection. You know, I, my middle name, Elena. Um, I was named after a good friend of, of my mother and my father's, who um, my parents met when they were working in a methadone clinic. My mother was the secretary, my father the security guard. And they loved this woman, Elena, who came. She was, you know, a beautiful soul whose life was very, very hard. Um, she was a black Boricua. She, she worked as a sex worker, not because she wanted to, but because she had to. Um, and she was a lesbian. And one of the ways she dealt her pain was with heroin. And those are like the factors or the facts of her life that shaped her. But she was also this beautiful, gentle soul that my parents adored. And so I became, you know, named in her honor. And that's part of, you know, like how my parents raised me was like, you love and you see the people for who they are. And you make a distinction between the structure and the circumstance and see through to the person which doesn't mean that you stay in a, in an abusive situation. It means that you, you see something beyond what is just right here. And that was something that I very much inherited from my mother. And I mean, she was amazing. Like in the sixties, like she traveled by herself. She went to, you know, South, South Asia. She was traveling through Tibet, Nepal, Bhutan, India, Iran, like my mother all by herself. You know, like was doing that, you know, when she was, you know, 19, 20. Um, wow. wow. 
And then again, she did that with my father several years later. And that's when I was conceived. And my parents raised me with that. Like we value knowledge. We value travel. We travel. We value connection. And, and above all, we we value being true to who we are. And I've been very lucky to have been instilled by that. And that's really, I think, one of the ways in which I'm actually like the most Jewish is my mother's teaching. So that knowledge and stories are what you carry with you. Knowledge and stories are what you carry with you. And that was part of why I had the strength also yeah. when I had to leave my life is I knew that it is something my ancestors had done before and most recently my mother. Right. Right. And, and I think that resilience through grounding yourself in identity is the hallmark of this time for so many people. Right. And having that multiracial identity is, is something that becomes a dynamic combination that makes you a seer of more things and allows you to approach, I think, the, the very complex work that you do with a versatility because now I'm going to tell our listeners that you are really working on, on this decolonization from a very multifaceted approach. You have multiple organizations working still towards the same end result in, in many respects, right? This, this level of healing through the land and um, through the food that is indigenous that you are the the seed keeper, the the librarian, the guardian of culture, really. Um, in and I think you're going to have to help me pronounce this, but it, somos semillas antillanas in uh, Cabo Rojo. Is that close? It's beautiful. Somos semillas antillanas. Somos semillas antillanas. That means we are Antillian seeds. Much much better. No, we're learning. And trust me, anybody who knows me on the island knows that I have very unique Spanish, which is the sweet way of saying my Spanish is, is horrendous. <laughs> I am from the diaspora. You know, I was raised <laughs> speaking English. Somos Semillas Santayanas is a mobile seed library. That would be of interest to um, people here in my region, because in Port Townsend, we have something called the Seed Alliance which is really focused on preserving seeds and creating that collection in part to get it, get those seeds out to the agrarian uh, farmers in this area and to have that knowledge base, right. That becomes part of culture, like a new lexicon for how we speak to each other, how we care for each other. So I wanted to ask you just to talk about being the seed librarian, what it means and like what, what physically does your mobile seed library do and how yeah. does it help people kind of become resilient for themselves, right? Have self-reliance. Well, first, thank you so much for mentioning this seed alliance where you are, because really like I came to do this work because I spent a lot of time with seed keepers, um, indigenous seed keepers, then people who are really just trying to ensure that we have biodiversity and there's beautiful, um, you know, efforts for not just seed preservation, but seed sharing which is very different. Seeds are meant to be shared and planted and grown, not just preserved. And so for me, using the model of the library is very sweet because it is about an exchange and keeping stuff within the community. So um, when I landed here on Borican after, you know, I had spent, I was, I was in a safe house for 71 days after my bank account was hacked and it was really coming to know this island through the trees and the plants that I'd never seen before. Like, I mean, you know, I'd spent a little bit of time on this island, you know, when I was in my 20s, but 
I wasn't coming at it from the standpoint of somebody who had spent so much time in movements for indigenous sovereignty, movements for decolonization. So I got here and, and I was so scared and horrified by my own life and experience that it was the trees that, that, that reminded me that I'm bigger than my experience in this moment. And so um, as I started spending more and more time in my community and I moved from the safe house into Cabarojo, which is the birthplace of Ramon Emeterio Betances, Dr. Ramon Emeterio Betances, who was a medical doctor and a fierce abolitionist. So he worked for a unified Caribbean region and he was very much against um, white supremacy, not just slavery, but white supremacy. So um, when I landed in his town, you know, like he's somebody I'd admired for years, read about. He is, to my island, he is very much a figure like Harriet Tubman. And um, so when I landed in his hometown, I, work, I started working a lot with his legacy, um, more closely with his legacy. Also because the town where I live, Cabo Rojo, was actually the site of some of the earliest um, invasions, colonial invasions of the island and the start of the first colonial enterprise. And a lot of my work is around decolonizing business education. So it was being in this town and thinking about how conquest and slavery unfolded here and who were people like Betances and what does he mean in my life? Like he, in many respects, is like a tree who has helped shape me. And then here I was in his town. So um, I live just a few minutes from his tomb. I would go visit his tomb. And at his tomb, I would actually stand under a tree. Wow. The tree is called uh, an iguera. So um, the fruit is what makes a maraca. And this tree just called to me and I'd stand under this tree and I would just like talk to him, talk to him and talk to the legacy and talk to the reality of like, how do people come home to an island that they haven't personally known, but they know within their, within their blood, within their songs, within like familial stories, even the ones that seem lost. And so I'd spend a lot of time under this tree. And that's where I got my first, my first fruit was from that tree. My first seed that I um, foraged and harvested. And I actually was able to grow six trees. And it was then that I learned just how sacred this particular tree is for sacred feminine energy. And um, that tree itself, wow. actually, I'm not the only one who, who goes to this tree for, for, for refuge. In the two years since I've been in Cabo Rojo, Every year, they, they put streamers up in this tree to, to mark the names of women and girls who have been murdered mm. by their partners. Wow. So it's a tree that other people recognize as a space of shelter. Wow. And so it was really like in this plaza, this historic plaza in Cabarrojo, where I would go and sit and be like, why am I here? How am I here? Like, how do I do this work? Like, you know, I'm no longer in a traditional college classroom. I'm no longer in the community where my language is not just intelligible, but eloquent. I'm in a place where I stumble over my Spanish and even the trees don't look like home. I'm used to redwoods. I'm used to like, you know, eucalyptus, like, mm -hmm. you know, here there's other kinds of trees, caoba, um, guanabana, like so many other types of, of trees. So it was here really that um, seeds and trees spoke to me. And then as I told other people, just that I would meet in the community about like my love of trees and plants and seeds, people started giving me their plants and their seeds. And so I became, I, I was chosen by my community to, to share the seeds and receive them. 
And it was in really meditating over what this meant, you know, like how do we become something different? So I am a seed. Somos semillas santayanas. We are, you know, Antillean seeds. So I am a seed of this island and I am a seed of my experiences. And I'm a seed also of, you know, our freedom fighters like Dr. Ramon Emeterio Betances, who as a poet called himself El Antellano. And that means a person of the Caribbean, a person of the Caribbean. And so I chose that name because I wanted to honor his specific, you know, legacy as a revolutionary um, poet, as a revolutionary doctor, as a revolutionary person of the people. So I used, um, you know, that, that memory and just the soil and the sweetness of the people around me. So for example, like I grow gandules, which are um, not indigenous, but they were brought here by colonizers to help, you know, feed people who are enslaved. And um, my gandules came to me from my friend Rafi, who I met one day when I was on my bicycle and like I stopped to drink some water under his mango tree and he popped up and scared me and we became great friends. He's 80. He like, you know, we just talk about, you know, like seeds and trees and he gives me stuff. And that's how I really started is like just taking seeds in and sharing them in the community. So like right now I'm on my like third generation of gandules, of, of trees born of those seeds. Wow. You know, people, you know, share seeds with me and then I distribute them. Yesterday I went to visit a farm in Ponce. Some of my family's from Ponce. I was there for an event with other people doing the work of decolonization. And my sort of like gift to the land and the host was I bought three trees. So I bought a, um, a guayaba, so a guava tree. And she, she was beautiful. She's really well mature and ready to go on the ground. Mm-hmm. She's about a foot and a half tall. I grew her from seed. I also brought a nispero. Um, another indigenous tree and she was about a foot tall and ready to go in the ground really really a strong robust tree both indigenous um, both from you know seeds that I, I, I was able to forage and find in the community and share and then I also bought seeds from um, another tree called the canafistula which is actually indigenous to Asia but has a ton of medicinal properties and some of the most beautiful flowers I've seen and so I wanted to share that medicine you know, with this farm, because, um, trees really are, you know, our, our shelter, not just for us, but, but, you know, for, for an entire ecosystem of creatures, including in the Caribbean, our ancestors. So our trees are living beings and guides. And so, um, that is the way that I connect. Yeah. So right now the, I I do want to say this. So the Somosimia Santayana's is um, just some of what I do. So that's, right now it's pretty informal. So what it means is like people will say like, oh, I love your tree. And I'll be like, oh, here's some seeds or here's a baby. Or, um, you know, like right now in my community, I'm responsible for like five different little, you know, patches that I tend, but then I'm also giving seeds away everywhere. So it's a very casual thing in my community because that's the capacity I have right now. Um, and part of that is because, you know, what I'm growing is something very different because there's Somos Semillas Santayanas, the mobile seed library. And then part of that too is Vivero Sin Nombre, No Name Nursery, which is a nursery that I'm starting of indigenous trees that are dedicated to our ancestors, the people who were stolen from us, whose names have, we don't know. So I work a lot with, you know, grieving and rituals of release. And it is through the the seeds and the trees that I'm able to survive my own experiences, but also give us on this island 
um, another way of living in the present to see beautiful flowers when they bloom, but also to have food freely growing in the community. Mm, that's an amazing gift. That's a, a real gift to a community of people um, to be able to keep propagating that, right? To keep it growing. I, in connection with the seeds and um, the work that you're doing, I just wanted to say that in this high technology world, right, that's accelerating so fast and maybe too fast for some of us, right? The, the, the one thing that maybe happened for some people in the pandemic is that we, we slowed down and we became more self-aware of it. But I, I've been spending more time in the Pacific Northwest out in the wilderness at times and out by rivers and m making observations of the natural world. And it occurred to me that when I think of the seed now, I think of it as the original intelligence. I'm more interested in how things grow of their own intelligence, right? Like that, that while other people are focused on where's the next frontier in AI, I'm much more concerned with how are we going to return to this original intelligence because the seed just grows, right? Like it, it knows what to do. I once had a a farmer um, in Georgia, you know, tell me that saying as above, uh, so below. And there's so much natural wisdom that comes from working with seeds, that comes from working with the soil and making observations of how you can apply these natural laws to your life. And, and I, I really want to say that, you know, when it comes to tragedy, right? Like, like when I was sort of looking through um, different things to understand this experience of di diaspora of, of people who were black slaves who were brought to Boracan, I, I realized that when people talk about the Caribbean, they don't even talk about it because, because it's not one of the recognized autonomous places, right? We, we're, we're still, the U.S. has this relationship that, you know, when I think about it in this new light of knowing you, I think to myself, well, look at that. We're still colonizing. Like we as a country are still laying claim to, to this place. And I haven't, I hadn't given it much thought until being in conversation with you. And it's really kind of opened my eyes in a different way. And I just can imagine that there's people can come with their personal tragedy and that experience of, of deep trauma. And then there's a, kind of pervasiveness of a different feeling of, of colonization in a different way that is just part of the fabric of engagement in, in society, I imagine. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's not always present, but it's, it seems to me that you are someone who's bringing that to the forefront people to engage in that conversation, yeah. which is important. Thank you. you know, the advocacy of it all. Yeah. Oh, it's really beautiful to hear you say that, you know, even just in speaking to me, you're, you're, shifting consciousness. I know you've done that for me, just thinking about Pacific Northwest and the salmon people and all the other people who've come to reside there. Like it's, the world looks differently when we remember our first peoples, not as in the past, but as living guardians in the present. Yeah. And for me, one thing I really hold on mm -hmm. to is that this island is Borigen and I'm of the Caribbean and I'm also of Turtle Island which is the name that many indigenous people use to refer to what's now known as the United States, Canada, and Mexico. And then Abiyala, which is more the 
Caribbean region and South America. So we in the Caribbean here, we're kind of like a toe of mother turtle, but we straddle both Abiyayala, like, you know, and what's now known as South America and North America, we kind of straddle both. You know, I like to say that we're a toe of mother turtle and we're moving. We're always moving and we're moving with the wind. We're moving with the, with the waves and we're also moving with climate change, but we've also always moved. My people are canoe people. And I think you understand that too in some of your own family history, like what it means to come from an archipelago, what it means to like be of the sea. And to be of the sea is very, very different than to be of a coast, you know, on an island as big Mm -hmm. as Turtle Island, like where you live in the Pacific Northwest. I mean, the sea is immense and extensive. On an island like this, you are surrounded by the sea. You know, it's not just something you look out on. It literally engulfs you, literally. So to be here, for me, it's always remembering that, like, my people have always traveled. So many of our stories were not, you know, our indigenous ancestors on this island prior to colonization, we weren't of one, one nation, one group, one tribe. We were a family of connected peoples who traveled and circulated because that's where richness is. We would trade. Some of our artifacts here have been found far up the Mississippi River in places yeah. like Cahokia, that's now known as St. Louis. Wow. You know, so many of our seeds that, that we consider ancestral on the island of Boricán, if we trace back their heritage, they came to us from Mexico, what's now known as Mexico, or what's now known as the Orinoco, like the river, part of the Amazon. Mm-hmm. They, they came here through travels, through people crossing over land, through crossing over water. They became part of this island. And so for me, remembering the flow, remembering the movement is a way that I can think, okay, settler colonialism is what we have now. It's what we still have. Slavery has not yet been abolished, but it isn't the only system that exists in the world. And it isn't the only system that my ancestors and yours have known. So we can create something different for the future as long as we hold that memory and carry the knowledge forward through, through our seeds, through our stories, through our networks. Mm-hmm. Wow. You have so much to, to be sharing with so many people. So I'm really excited to, to continue this conversation. Um, you have also begun what I think is just remarkable work in, in terms of providing home space and loving environments for people who are two spirit. Do, do you want to talk about that? Because I think, you know, we, we are culturally here beginning to kind of put our minds around things and put our hearts around experiences that have long been in the shadows, I think, and bringing them to light with the joy of the the seeds and the trees and everything that you're doing around it. I just, I think it's good for people to hear about it, that, that it could spark some inspiration. Even in our area right now, there, there are some people working at this, but working at it differently. Yeah. I, I'm very, very, you know, lucky, like in many respects, I, like so many of us have, have survived a lot of sexual and family violence and that's not how it should be. It's a desecration. It's a desecration. And we need to be very upfront about that. I believe we need to say that like rape is one of the most grave of violations, incest, one of the most grave of violations. The reality of slavery is that it's a system of organized rape. And so the personal experiences, you know, of my ancestors here, including my grandmother on the island, 
the reason she left this island wasn't just because of U.S. policies. It's because she was she was raped at 12. She fled. Ugh. And I share that just because like so much of the work that I do is for survivors of violence. And, I, and when I see in the world what's happening to those of us who are queer and trans, non-binary, intersex, it's just an absolute horror. I mean, so many of the youth that are without homes is because they've been kicked out by families who cannot love them for who they are. And um, so a lot of the work that I do is to create loving spaces of refuge. And that's born for me. Like for many years, I've been a part of, you know, movements to end violence in all forms, from policing and incarceration to um, rape and sexual trafficking. That's like the, the heart of my work as, as an activist and as a scholar. And then with my more recent experiences with what I endured at the hands of my ex-husband and um, in the wake of leaving him, yeah, what does safety look like? And so when I landed on the island of Borican, it turned out that one of my good friends from, or one of my dear friends from San Francisco, who I actually met at a protest, Zulma Olivera Pega, they work for Paz para la Mujer which is one of the biggest umbrella organizations on the island that provides services for survivors. And Paz para la Mujer means peace for, for women. And my friend Zulma heads up many of their programs, mm. specifically also the Trans Task Force of Puerto Rico. And so it was in reconnecting with Zulma on this island where they themselves brought the, the, you know, they were born and raised here, but spent time in the diaspora because it wasn't a safe place for them to be. They came back and then we reconnected after my time in the safe house and started chatting. And it was sweet chatting, right? Like, because we're friends and we're also really active in, you know, movements to end violence. Like here in Spanish, we say, ni una más, ni una menos, not one more, not one less. It's that we're all in this together to end femicide, to end the way in which, you know, women and girls are targeted. Mm -hmm. And then also to really, you know, expose trans misogyny. So the way that, you know transphobia is also misogynistic and how that, you know, impacts people, all of us, all of us. So Zulma and I started chatting and one of their big dreams was to create a, a refuge for youth who've been thrown from their homes. And so we're working together and Zulma is going to be um, in charge of the, um, you know, doing the case management for the youth we welcome and I'm going to be building the beautiful gardens. And so right now, you know, it's it's starting small. So it's Fundación Yamoka Opia. Um, Fundación is foundation. Yamoka Opia is how we're reclaiming in our indigenous language as best we can what it means to be two-spirit. Because for us, the idea of two-spirit, which is used a lot in Native North America to talk about genders and sexualities outside of the colonial binary, that resonates with us with how, how we live and how our ancestors lived. So in the Caribbean, um, on this island, in this region, you know, our creator, we call her Atabe. And Atabe is, you know, she's a goddess who gives birth. You know, there, there's many different creation stories attached to Atabe, but she is fierce. She is, you know, hurricanes and sea storms, but she is also the most loving and gentle breeze. And so, you know, for me, like, that's kind of like what, you know, sexuality and gender are. It's sacred in all of its many manifestations, whether it's gusty or slow. So Zulma and I, what we're trying to do is think about, okay, how do we create a safe space for, for so many of our youth without homes? And then for us as working professionals who have also experienced so much violence, how do we create the leadership culture that will work for us? So 
We're starting with this small foundation that's going to be around rapid housing for our youth. And so, um, you know, places of loving welcome for youth. Mm -hmm. But then it's bigger than that. We're calling together a coalition of people that love queer and trans youth exactly as they are and want to nourish them. And the people that are part of our coalition, we're already a dozen organizations strong. Mm -hmm. And all of us, some of the organizations that are joining us don't have a focus on sexuality and gender. But they know, like they're artisans or they're, you know, educators, but they know that the, the well-being and the healing and the future of our, of our community rests in protecting all of us, especially the most vulnerable. So our foundation is dedicated to children of the indigenous Black Caribbean. We're dedicated to upholding the sacred nature of youth, queer, non-binary, intersex, trans. And we're going to create a community starting small with rapid housing, building this coalition, and then taking these abandoned spaces in the community and creating a hub where people can come together so that our youth can grow up in a loving environment and provide the support that we, their elders, need and our living elders. Like I live on an island where more than 20, 25 percent of our people are over age 65. In just the last you know, two decades, we've lost a million people, most of whom are working age or children. So we really need to nourish these intergenerational connections. And some of that is really like grappling with our legacy as a culture born. And I'm specifically talking about Puerto Rico, a culture born of rape and theft and, and, and murder. How do we like transform that? And for us, it's really looking back to where we come from, remembering where it is that we need to go to the future that we know we've already walked into. So we're going to walk there together in a different way in the light of our ancestors, in the light of our youth, in the light of what we know ourselves to deserve. So that's some of the work that I've been doing. So right now it's a lot of like, you know, grant writing and, um, you know, website development. And because my Spanish is funky, my my focus on Fundación Yamocaopia is really on thinking about some of the, you know, cultures and structures that we have in place. And so much of my work is around decolonizing business education is really figuring out, okay, what is the flexible leadership structure that we, we need, you know, as people that also carry our own wounds, then also how do we get land back? Like our thing, you know, fundacion foundation, you know, like we really want to bring our land back into community ownership, collective ownership where food isn't something you go to get at a supermarket, but literally it grows right outside and it's available for all. And so that's kind of how we're maneuvering in the world. Mm-hmm. And it will grow, it will grow. And if you have interest in Fundacion Yamokopia, please. Yes, and I'm going to put a link so people can find it in the description of this podcast because I think this is very important work. I think it can become sort of that, that beacon in the lighthouse for people to understand a different way of providing food security in a self-reliant, resilient, and perpetually renewing way. I mean, that's that's something that's really important. And I know that as you are reimagining what a world economy could look like um, through this new way of thinking about business development, thinking about businesses and their structures, that in itself is an act of deconstructing a a certain existing paradigm. But coming from a much more expansive space of creation in that sort of divine feminine energy, I think if we were to really think about how we value things, we might not have the kinds of things that we see now because 
I was writing and talking about this recently with some friends. You know, if we follow Mother Nature, she doesn't tell the grass to stop growing in order for the apple trees, the pear trees, and the quince trees to grow and bear fruit. It all happens. It's complex. And there's space for all of it to happen. And I think sometimes when we think about race and these challenges that we're facing these days, we think that we can only do one thing. Yes, we have to focus our attention in certain places first. That I can agree to. But we have to remember that the whole of it can grow. And we have to do it together collectively in the way that you're doing, where you are in a very you know, methodical way. And, and people have to have their minds expanded a little bit to see that all of this work is interconnected. And in my having done a, a executive coaching work, leadership work uh, around the country, there are fewer and fewer people who can see that way, who have that vision. And it's so important to me that people like you have this voice and that there are ways to broadcast it so that other people can be touched by it, moved by it, and inspired by it to take up their own piece of that mantle, right? Because I think there are other women warriors out there like you, and I'm sure there are other men who want to join the same kind of tradition to create that legacy because it's it's so important and vital. And, and the pandemic, I think, has shown us that, that we've more people are getting out there to try to get their hands in the dirt and have found refuge in the natural world. And I, I just think you, you provide very clear examples of how one can do that. So thank you. Oh, thank you for that. And thank you. Like, I just, um, I do want to say, like, you are one of those women warriors. And our warriors, you know, one of my spiritual teachers, Carol Cano, says that, you know, when we, you know, speak of warriors, what we're really talking about is leaders, because we don't want war. What we want is peace. That's right. We are defending the sacred. And we're doing it in a way that requires us to be fierce, but it's because our love is so strong. It's because our dedication to Mother Earth is so fundamental to who we are. And there's so many of us who are doing this work and it's finding them. And then also recognizing some spaces you step out of. So like right now, I'm helping to develop this um, you know, program with Zulma. So it's a trans feminist organization. And so what does trans leadership look like? I'm not trans, you know, I'm a, you know, a cisgender queer woman. And so it's recognizing that my role and support is to lend the skills that I have and let the people who are trans step up and say what needs to be done and lead and critique and direct the initiatives because they know far more than I do what, what the reality of their lives looks like. And then with me and the ways that I love and support people you know, who are queer, who are trans, who are two-spirit, who are intersex, using the privileges that I have, my education. And, you know, for me, I benefit from white racial privilege. You know, if you cover up my tattoos and send me in a room, I'm Dr. Darshana Lenacampos, and I'm very fierce and very loving and very convincing. And that's something that I know my grandmother could never do because, you know, she was a short woman who couldn't speak English. And that's something a lot of the youth in our program mm-hmm. can't do because they've been denied it by the lives that they've been given. And so for me, it's like, okay, how do I, you know, step into who I am? And, yeah. and I want to point out to people that what you talk about in that work um, with, with people who are transgendered, queer, intersect, all of that, you are more than simply an ally. Like that, that word for me has become problematic and it might not be for other people. 
but I really feel like we have to step up. It isn't just about allyship anymore. It is really about a sacred sisterhood and a sacred brotherhood and a sacred siblinghood, right? Whatever it is to you, it has to have a deeper commitment, which means also it gives you the expansiveness for navigating, right? Because even if you're siblings, there will be times where you, you know, are not connected, where you have to grapple through and you have to work something out. And it's sort of like tilling the soil when there are a lot of rocks, you know, you, you really have to work at it. And, and then the result though, is more informed by a diversity of opinions. And so I really love how you are showing up in those spaces and how you speak about it, because ultimately it's the most loving and most respectful way. And, you know, I just, I hope that more and more people think about this in, in a different light. Mm, thank you. Oh, that's so rich what you're saying. Yeah, I'm, I'm tired of allies because they step in and they step out. It's a very different thing when you consider yourself not just, mm. not just connected, but kin. Right. Like that your safety is my safety and together we are stronger. Together we are richer. Mm-hmm. Together we are more resilient and, 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 yes. and more of the time, what we need at this time. Like we need our dreamers. We need, we need our doers. We need our activists. And we also need like our youth and our elders, our most vulnerable people at this time. Like how do we sort of, you know, provide them with loving support, especially when they're trauma survivors. Mm-hmm. None of the youth that I work with now, none of the elders that I work with have had easy lives and I haven't either. So what I want is other people who understand that this was not okay. The life that I have led has not been okay. It's been right. cruel. And a lot of the suffering has been unnecessary and it's been enhanced and, and cemented, like literally cemented and sealed by structures. So I want to do anything I can to try to like, you know, rip up that cement and see what grows, see what grows, see what happens when we have, you know, our natural abundance and our natural capacity to, to feel a fullness of ourselves as humans. And that's what I'm trying to do through my work here, my work with seeds. And, and part of the reason I work with the seeds and the trees is because like, they just love me endlessly. Right. They love me endlessly and, and they give me life and they teach me things that don't require words. Mm. Yeah. I want, at, at some point, I, I would love for people to have an understanding of, you know, you have this um, visual wheel <laughs> of, of what this new paradigm might look like for a new business economy business development. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that looks like so that people could imagine it a little bit? I just want to plant a seed, if you will, in people's minds. Because here, I think most recently, I've been reading about emergent strategies by Adrienne Marie Brown. And she really talks about following a natural model of murmuration in terms of how leadership can be structured. And even in my own designs for my own uh, business at this point, I know that that is the right way forward for me because I have, I have never been concerned with power or anything like that. I've been more concerned about the collective good anytime I've been in a leadership position. And so that thing really, her book really spoke to me, Emergent Strategies. And I'm wondering, like, you know, tell me about, tell me about your thoughts. I'm so curious and we haven't had any time to really talk about that, but what are you, what are you wanting to share right now about it? Well, like you, I love what Adrian Mary Brown is doing. 
I mean, her stuff in emergence strategy and pleasure activism and even talking about social justice movements is irresistible. Like, let's put on, you know, like fairy wings and go flounce around the trees as we're digging in the dirt. Like, why not? Like, why do we always have to be so like direct and fact-driven. It's helpful and it's part of what we need, but there's so much more. And that's the fact that we're these magical, glittering, vulnerable creatures. And let's celebrate that. Um, So for me, I kind of took a lot of inspiration because I don't know Adrian Marie Brown personally, but we circulate in a lot of the same communities. We have a lot of shared friends and we're from that same sort of mindset, which is that political change, system change, it's it's a political and economic process. It requires public policies. It requires us to attend to resources and how they're shared. It requires us to think about land, not just at the most local level, but in world scale, considering the scope of the environmental crisis we face. And decolonization is something that is spiritual and embodied too, because there's a way that I carry it. Um, There's a way that you carry it. We all have sort of different ways of being positioned under the world economy, under white supremacy, under settler colonialism. So it was with that that I've been working on this method of business decolonization. And so basically what I was doing was weaving together what a lot of other, um, you know, activists and thinkers and artists have been doing, learning from them and trying to pull them together. So for me, what I teach, I use a, I call it a regenerative medicine wheel. So I use symbols and stories to teach about what decolonization is. And so, for example, the first step is radical self-love is the heart of decolonization. So what do you most want for yourself? Mm. What do you most want for the world that we share? From the heart, we drop to our roots where we honor our teachers, our ancestors, our friends, the places and the personal experiences that have shaped us. And it keeps going. There are 28 steps to the method I teach that also take us through how we mix currencies, how we think about seeds as a currency, time as a currency, cash as a currency, even things like guilt and shame are currencies. Mm -hmm. So what are the currencies that we're going to weave together, weave together to get the greatest sense of stability at this time? In the communities where I live, I mean, not only is this island in an incredible debt crisis that was absolutely born of settler colonialism and vulture capitalism, there's not a lot of cash to go around, but many of us have food stamps. That's a currency that we can use to buy things in the collective to create food to share. But we can also grow our own food by sharing our seeds, sharing our time. So a lot of what I do right now is thinking about ways that I can live in the world outside of the market economy while also living under the market economy. So at this time, you know, I'm starting to practice what the method I've been working on for a few years. So the method, it's a 28-step method that guides you through designing and elevating a business dedicated to decolonization, financial reparations, the survivors of violence, and rematriation. So for me, decolonization is that formal economic and political process to exit white supremacy, to exit settler colonialism, to exit the oil and gas regime. That's part of it. But it's also spiritual and embodied. Reparations for me are heartfelt financial apologies that don't always feel good to lawyers, to investors, to the descendants of colonizers. They don't always feel good and they don't have to because what we're grieving and what we have lost 
Oh my God. When I think about, you know, George Floyd's family. Oh my gosh. Yeah. When I think of the family of Alex Nieto, with, I mean, another young person, a, a, you know, a young brown man that was murdered in the Ohlone Bay, Alex Nieto. When I think about what happened to Corrine Gaines, recently on the island, a young trans man was murdered. Samuel Damian. When I think about the grief, finances will never give us back what has been stolen. Not our ancestors or not the people who are being stolen right now by, by, by police violence or other forms of social violence. But money can help ease our need to create something different the needs that we have and so um with that is you know okay rematriation if we're going to be healing the wounds and changing the room changing the wounds and changing the story how do we return to the earth as our mother and really hear what it is that she wants from us what she needs from us what she's giving us but also what we can offer for each other so that's really the 28 steps in this method that I teach are really grounded in those principles. And it's talking about all the aspects of business development, like communication, branding, um, you know, like um, metrics. But I do it in a storytelling method because that's how my, my people, you know, most brown and black people were storytellers. You know, indigenous peoples all over the world, we tell stories. We can write them down too, but a lot of it is, it's a living knowledge that also takes form through the air the place in which we share knowledge right so um that's kind of like what i've been doing and i've been using somos semillas antellanas yeah even that alone that idea of of teaching business through storytelling it's almost as if this sort of dominant approach to different things right now in terms of fundraising they talk about storytelling as if it's a tool or a technique when it's just been ancient wisdom of sharing, like, you know, knowledge for so many cultures, that it isn't really a tool or a technique. It's just how it works, right? How, how knowledge is passed along. And I, I'm, I'm really, you know, reflecting on the, the difference because I've heard in certain experiences of people of color who are starting up new businesses in this time of pandemic, that the traditional models of advising available to them through, you know, the small business administration or through whatever a, a county has to offer, let's say, or a community has to offer may not work very well. And why is that? It, it might be because in some ways, people need to be seen first, and every person has a narrative. And if we're not willing to listen to the narrative of where this person has come from, what that person's lineage is, how that person has come to be in this place of wanting to open a business, then we've sort of negated or kind of canceled the, the why, the, the reason for that person's being in business in the first place. And so that these old structures and these old templates don't work for everyone. And so we have to reconsider them. And I just am fascinated by the model that you have. I think it can be really instructive. Even in my own experience, I have sometimes had, and I'll, I'll be you know, frank about it, white men tell me that I'm, I'm not speaking as concisely enough for them in a particular moment. 
and it's strange because I've come from, you know, this corporate biotech background where I was billing time in six minute increments. And if they really wanted me, if I really felt the need to speak in a time efficient manner, I can do it. But, but what they don't realize is the topics we were talking about really required more education of other people so that they could understand. But, but in their sort of mindset, they just couldn't even see that. And so I can understand how people can become frustrated or feel like they have no place at the table. And so when we can offer a different alternative for all businesses to simply choose how they proceed according to their own, which our intuition can guide us to, right? In that natural state of oneness, we can get there all on our own even, and yet there will still be collective consciousness because of our interconnectedness through that oneness. And so for me, the work that you're doing is groundbreaking and important and like the natural next step of evolution. So thank you for doing that work. Thank you so much. It's really, uh, it has been the greatest challenge and the greatest pleasure and the deepest learning of my life to be doing this work. And I'm so grateful to, to, to all the people that I've met, you know, you just being one of the more recent people who just like reminds me why it is that I, that I do what do what I do. I do what I do. I think we're all doing it in our own ways. And this, um, you know, way of business education, a lot of it. So I teach it through stories and symbols, but there literally is a visual medicine wheel. Like I literally um, have designed this method. It's, and when I say me, it's just, it's emanating through creator, through my ancestors, through all the people I've known, it's coming through me, but it's not my wisdom. It's a shared wisdom that I'm just shaping given my own experiences. And it's an actual medicine wheel. And, you know, for me, part of it is because I'm trying to get people to see the world, not just through symbols and stories, but also like circles and patterns that are bigger than like a linear narrative of conquest and colonization. And so, you know, for me, when I do this work, it's, it's a challenge to some of the other models. Like there's a big one in uh, business education, entrepreneurial education called the business model canvas. And it looks kind of like a, um, a, a puzzle where there are all these different pieces that fit together. And then once you have all the pieces in place, you have an op, you know, a business that is operational or can be put into, put into, you know, structure, put into action, but what we're not flat on the page. So I'm trying the, the way that I do business education, um, the way that I think about leadership is from the standpoint of nourishing our, our deepest wisdom, and then also guiding us to, to do something more because we can't add in the environment to our calculations. We need to start from the standpoint of what does this earth need for her to survive this transition? What do we, her children need to live well and free as we work through this transition born of climate change, which is human made, but also part of a larger natural process. Mm-hmm. We recognize both. We recognize both mm-hmm. and we can see beyond the page, beyond where the pieces seem to fit together so well. And we could see something a little bit more like sometimes, sometimes we really need to, to go out to see. We need to stray from the board, stray from the narrative, stray from the linearity, say more than six minutes and don't build, but do it because of love. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, and I'm, I'm finding that I'm hearing more and more businesses really doing that, really trying to 
upend the systems and the the ways in which we deny access to people who need the same things that you know each one of us needs, whether it be housing, whether it be just some kind of shelter, food, all of those things. And the thoughtfulness that I'm seeing now, even as a result of the crisis, born out of crisis, really, it's it's a powerful movement. And my biggest prayer right now is that it takes hold longer than the crisis of the pandemic, that people don't begin to get back into their old routines, that the shakeup of it all keeps them grounded in facing the reality that there is no such thing as essential and non-essential, right? That we're all essential and, and that the, the, the needs for health, you know, that, that we need to understand it, not just for ourselves, but for everyone. And, and that, that you have a medicine wheel to me tells me that by design, what you are preparing for people is to engage in a healing process from the beginning. Right, that that goes into the future, and I do think that that is aligned with that divine feminine energy that comes from the earth itself. So, anyway, that's neither here nor there. But I have a lot of admiration and respect for this deep work that you're doing, and want to be part of it in in different ways if I can. So, and and, and you are you're already doing this work. <laughs> Thank you. I want to ask you if there's anything that we haven't touched upon that you want to talk about, you know, in terms of helping listeners to understand you, maybe just, you know, bring us back to like your, your every day, like, because this isn't easy work. Like, you know, because you are Dr. Darshan Elena Campos, people might think that, that this is easy for you to do. And when you tell me what your daily life is like, I'm like, wow. This, this is a big deal that you're doing this work. It is not like personally easy and, and that you have even taken responsibility for like, you know, aiding another human being on a very personal level day in and day out. Those types of things, like I marvel at them, at the capacity that you have to love and to do the work at every level of your being. So can you tell us about your, your, you're just your every day. Yeah. So, um, I'm very lucky to live in a beautiful environment. It's, um, you know, there's trash on the ground, but, you know, all I need to do is look up and I see a petirre in the tree. I see so many different kinds of trees. And now I'm at the point where I can be like, oh, there's 11 yaguas that I can see. So that's our royal palm from my patio. Oh, look at all the sea of ucar. Ucar is one of our indigenous trees. Like, for me, I'm lucky that I live in a beautiful environment. Like this island is in deep crisis. And I'm not going to say that I don't see the effects every day of climate change, but also this island we've suffered severe. Um, so starting in late 20, 2019, and then through, through most of 2020, we had a series of devastating earthquakes in the south of the, of the island. So about you know, 30 minute drive from where I am, there's extensive devastation and thousands of people um, have been forced from their homes. And many of them for months were actually living in um, refugee facilities with armed military guards. So that's, you know, just in the last year and there are people still living in tents. And then there's the devastation of Hurricane Maria and Irma, which happened in 2017. And we're still grappling with the reality. Like we have not recovered from any of that and, and we won't for a long time. And part of it is because we can't go back to the infrastructural models that we've had 
that are born of oil and gas. So my grandmother's hometown, Bayama, which is known for its, you know, medicine women. It's known as the city of witches. And my grandmother is of that lineage and I am her chosen one. So that town is known for not the beauty of its people right now. It's known for the coal ash that is just sitting on the beach and blowing in the wind because there isn't a disposal mechanism. So we need to really think about ways getting out of the oil and gas economy and doing it in in the most simple ways. So I do that by living with my feet and a bike because I'm physically able, physically well enough to do it. I live my life on this tropical island, which is very mountainous, without a car. And it's given me a way of connecting in with my neighbors, including I met this beautiful elder, Carmen, just a week before we went into lockdown on this island. And I met her because she had a dance in her step and she reminded me of my grandmother and I can hear her in my ear saying she's the one. And then we went into lockdown and it turned out that Carmen, she's a, she's a survivor of extreme physical violence um, at the hands of both her first and her second husband. I won't share the details, but as somebody who has spent time in safe houses and also studied movements, you know, of, of survivors, one of the most extreme lives she survived. So I started to care from her and learn from her. And she grew up very traditionally. She was raised um, in very indigenous ways. Like her home was actually made of yagua, the royal palm. She was telling me about like how the seed pods are what she would use for cosecha, for harvest. How, you know, some of the, the palm fronds, when they fall to the ground, they're so huge and so big. They were perfect for positioning in the river to wash clothes. So I started to care for Godman and do her shopping and take her walking. And it turned out, you know, to be a very um, loving, you know, generous friendship that was also hard. You know, it was very hard because she has lived a really rough life. So for Godman, I would do her shopping on foot or by bike for almost a year. This month, I was very excited. Somebody else was able to step up because I was shopping for her twice a week because we live in an environment with a poor energy grid. So like, it's hard to keep stuff in the fridge. She likes fresh fruit. She also has no teeth. So there needs to be a lot of soft Mm. things. So being with her was teaching me a lot about plant life, but also teaching me about what does it mean to love somebody as they end? Like as they come to a close in their years. Mm. In the time I've come to know Carmen, she has become older. And because of some of the ways in which her trauma and, and, and aging are manifesting, I've had to, to limit some of the ways that we interact with one another. And that's part of the, the healing process, the, the decolonial process is be like, where am I going to have the greatest impact without hurting myself in the process, mm-hmm. without yeah. sacrificing myself? And so I continue to, you know, to check on Carmen and, and that, that gentleness and compassionate self-care and recognize, you know, like this is when, I, when I think about what we're going through on a world scale and what we need to do and, and the weight that is borne by people. And I will, I'm 45, I'll be 46 next month. I imagine that you're, you know, somewhat close to me in my age and we carry very specific things in terms of our families, both in relationship to youth and elders. And, and we have to figure out ways to survive and navigate in the world that are um, not just loving of other people, but ourselves. And, and that's not always easy. Sometimes we do have to make harsh choices, but it's always doing it not in, not only in the light of love, but, but also in the light of something we've never seen because maybe the love that we've lived isn't actually what, 
what we need. <laughs> and what I mean by that is like, it's not the romantic Hollywood love. It's something, a deeper mm-hmm. form of like kinship and connection. That is like, right. I want to make sure that every elder in my community, even the people who have been abusive to me or others have everything that they need to live well and free. And that's not about a cage. That's not about a prison. That's not about any sort of containment unit. And it's certainly not a direct payment from the government. About having access to like housing that feels good, food that feels good, and people that care and respect them as they are. And me too. Me too as a survivor. So those are some of the things that I've been thinking about. And then the other bit I'd want to say is all the work that I'm doing with Somos Semillas Santayanas, Vivero Sin Nombre, so no name nursery, we are Antillian Seeds, as well as Fundación Yamoka Opian, dedicated to queer and trans youth who need homes and building loving communities for them. All of these projects I'm doing are a way for me to actually test out the method of business education I've been developing for several years, really seeing if it's a viable method to, to share with others. And that in time, as I stabilize and other people stabilize around me in this work, building a migrating university and a decolonial business academy where I can share this work and also have other people share what they're doing that is a part of it. You know, learning how to touch food in new ways. What does it mean to actually like grow cilantro from seed? And that's really what I want to see. And so that's what I'm working towards. It's visionary work. Yeah, it's visionary work that that has the resonance of reality for me. So I am 100% encouraging you just to keep sharing because I think more people can find you and that murmuration will happen in order to, you know, help lift, lift it and accelerate that sharing of wisdom through the storytelling. I really want to thank you for everything that you've shared with us. And I, I think you might be sharing a recipe at some point that might be, you know, something we might be able to find some substitutes for or something like that, that might help us understand Boricon indigenous culture a little better. So I will post whatever link you send me or, 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 or the ingredients or whatnot. I want to thank you just for the time, the generosity of spirit that you've had with us and the sharing of your profound thoughts about a new direction that, that is rooted in what was always there um, in mother earth. I, I think it's fabulous. And I do think that it is definitely, you know, just a great example of food love, that space between terroir and the Tao of food. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.